Atchison Daily Champion newspaper. Dateline, Thursday, July 9th, 1885, Atchison, Kansas. The community was shocked shortly after the supper hour last night by the announcement that Miss Mary Baldwin had been found cruelly and brutally murdered in her bed, and the circumstances which have developed make it the most shocking and atrocious homicide that has ever occurred in our midst. Welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murders. Host may hurt listeners' feelings. Give unsolicited advice. Be politically incorrect and judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. Listeners, I ran across this case while I was researching a more recent case in Atchison. As you all know, I'm easily distracted, so of course I went down the rabbit hole of the Mary Baldwin case. Since it kept distracting me, I decided to go down the rabbit hole a bit longer. The main source for information about the murder that I used on the podcast is the newspaper that Atchison Daily Champion, which covered the case extensively and very conscientiously for a newspaper of that time. As far as I can tell, the Champion went out of business before 1900. My guess is that it was absorbed by another paper. The Atchison Globe is the newspaper in Atchison nowadays. Atchison, Kansas is a very interesting little city. Nowadays, population about 11,000. West of Leavenworth, about half an hour's drive. It's right on the Missouri River, very picturesque, definitely worth a visit if you're in the area. It's best known as the birthplace of the famous, famous aviator Amelia Earhart, the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic. She and her co-pilot mysteriously disappeared in the South Pacific, trying to fly around the world. That would have been back in the 30s, maybe 1936. 
That disappearance is the subject of much speculation, books, documentaries, podcasts. A good podcast I remember listening to about Amelia Earhart's disappearance is from um, Thinking Sideways. That was a great podcast. Sadly, they stopped producing it a year or two ago. I don't know if you can listen to it or not. I... I will check. Just a minute. Okay, I checked. It's still out there. If you're looking for a podcast to binge, it's a very good one. There's a recent post, too, from one of the guys, Joe, who um, was on the Thinking Sideways podcast. It's just from a few days ago. It looks like he's got a new podcast with somebody else called the shocking details. So anyway, I just subscribed subscribed to that. Cool. You can visit Amelia Earhart's home in Atchison. It's a museum. Also, if you Google most haunted places in America, believe it or not, you will see Atchison, Kansas listed on many of the websites. Um, sorry, I got really sidetracked into all kinds of stuff. Let's see. Back to our murder, the Mary Baldwin murder. We'll stop talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. In 1885, Atchison is a bustling city of over 15,000. It's a major hub for the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad. There's a bridge over the Missouri River at Atchison, connecting it to points east and west, and a huge railroad yard. Atchison is thriving, home to many industries. Mary Baldwin's late father, James W. Baldwin, was a wealthy man in Atchison. I looked a little bit into the family history to get an idea of our victim's circumstances. In the 1860 U.S. Census, James William Baldwin, 29 years old, lives with his wife Amanda Melvina, maiden name Warriner Baldwin, 26, and daughter Mary Elizabeth, age 4. It seems like Mrs. Baldwin primarily goes by Melvina, so that's what I'll call her from now on. She signs everything M.A. Baldwin. James and Melvina are from New York, but little Mary is born in California. She would have been born in 1856, right when the gold rush is going on in the Old West. I wondered if maybe James got a start on his fortune out there. His occupation is listed as moneylender on one census and capitalist on another. And that is what happened, at least according to Melvina's obituary. After the marriage in 1853, they left New York and headed west with a load of merchandise to sell in California. After making a tidy profit selling these goods, they also did some gold mining before heading back to settle in Kansas, so quite an adventure they had out west. In Atchison, the Baldwin family 
is very well off. When daughter Mary is seven, James and Malvina welcome a son, William James Baldwin, into the family. Altogether, James and Malvina had five children, but only Mary and William lived past childhood. Interestingly, in the 1880 census, daughter Mary Baldwin has shaved three years off her age, and James and Melvina have added three years. Whatever, the newspapers, um, when they talk about the murder, always list Mary as age 26 when she's murdered. Sorry, Mary, but she's pushing 30 very hard. The census also also shows six adult boarders living at the house. So it's quite crowded there at the family home, which is located at 1101 Commercial Street. Commercial Street is one of the main drags in Atchison, still, still is. I drove up there to check the house out. I'll put a picture of what I'm pretty sure is the Baldwin House in the show notes. If you know the area, it's the northwest corner of 10th and Commercial, about a block, uh, maybe two, uh, up from Taco Bell. There's a modern little office building right on the corner with the address 1101 Commercial. North of that is an older two-story home that looks like it's several apartments. I'm not an architecture buff, but it looks like the right time period. To be honest, that part of Atchison is a little seedy now. Atchison does have many beautiful old homes, but unfortunately many aren't kept up very well. Nowadays, the population, as I said, is barely 11,000, and there's a very high unemployment rate there. A lot of crime, mostly petty and related to drugs. There is a small liberal arts Catholic college in Adjison Benedictine College located to the east, very close to the river. That part of town is much nicer than commercial intent. The historic homes there are larger and much better maintained. The newspapers of 1885 say that the Baldwin family lived in their home for many years and described the grounds as extensive. So I'm thinking they owned most of that little block. The Baldwins have the means to afford a house in a more posh part of town, at least I think so. They certainly didn't need to be taking in borders to make ends meet. My guess is they just liked living in the family home in the middle of town. In 1885, this would be a very nice neighborhood, and it's close to shops and restaurants and churches and the trolley car stop. It's only about a mile from the river. Nevertheless, it's also very close to the main railroad tracks and grain elevators and factories and businesses, so it may not be surprising that a burglary is reported at the Baldwin home about three months before the murder of Mary Baldwin. James dies in 1884, and leaves a large estate valued at well over $50,000. So over a million and a half, almost $2 million in today's money. 
The papers report that half the estate went to the widow and a fourth to each of the children. I squinted through the probate papers, and it looks more to me like the children each get five or six thousand dollars, so $150,000 right away, and the widow controls the bulk of the estate. Still, it appears that Malvina is generous with the children, and it's reasonable to think that each expects to inherit half the estate when she dies. William marries not long after his father's death in 1884 to Miss Mattie B. Spicer, and they move into their own home not far away. William helps his mother with the family properties, but his main business is as a builder. He buys up lots and towns and starts building houses, much like his father did. Melvina and Mary continue to live at the family home along with one couple, a married couple, Mr. and Mrs. Barrow, and another young man who works in one of the factories. Mary is engaged to Mr. Albert H. Lewis, who is about 10 years older than she is. He runs a successful boot and shoe store there in Atchison. On Wednesday, July 8, 1885, Michael J. Fitzgerald, who is one of the boarders at the Baldwin House, and his friend Charles Spaulding stopped by the house on their way home from work. The two young men work as machinists in Atchison. They stop by the house to water the little garden kept by Mr. and Mrs. Barrows, who also board at the Baldwin House and are out of town for a while as Michael promised he would do every evening. To give you an idea of the layout of the house, there are four doors into the house on the first floor, a main door, two doors on the east side, and a door to the kitchen in the back. On the west side of the house, there's another door to the second floor at the top of an outside set of stairs. This upstairs door is the one Michael normally uses to get to the upstairs hall that leads to his rooms. Normally, when Michael leaves in the morning, he goes out this door, which locks automatically behind him. There's also a screen door. It's July, very hot in Kansas, so most of the time after he leaves, Mary opens the doors upstairs, just latching the screen door to get some air flowing upstairs. This evening, he notices that the screen door isn't latched and the outside hall door upstairs is still locked, so he assumes that Mary has likely gone out for the evening with her fiancé. Michael and Charles notice that a wooden panel has been cut out of the kitchen door. They immediately think of the burglary of a few months before and wonder if he might have come back. The other doors in the house are secure. When they finish watering and go into the house, they can see that the northwest room on the ground floor has been ransacked. As the reporter for the champion says, turn topsy-turvy. Still in an open drawer, they can see a small revolver and a sterling silver bracelet. 
yes, listeners, that is odd if this is a real burglary. They know that Melvina Baldwin is out of town, so they decide they'd better check on Mary just to be sure. When they go upstairs to her apartment at the northeast corner of the house, they find her door slightly ajar. From the Daily Champion, a step further, their horrified gaze fell upon the lifeless form of the young lady. She was clad in her nightdress, lying diagonally across the bed, her head about 18 inches from the headboard, a pillow over the face, another lying on the floor next to the wall, and the bed clothing hanging over one side of the bed rail. They did not stay to examine further, but ran from the house and gave the alarm. The news spreads very quickly. As I said, it's a hot summer night, so lots of people are out and about or sitting on their front porches nearby. Before long, there are what's reported to be hundreds of people on the scene. Listeners, there's no byline on the stories about the murder in the Daily Champion, so I don't know who actually wrote them. And there may have been more than one reporter on this story, but I'm going to call this person our, or persons, our intrepid reporter. And a very good reporter, he or she, there are a few women reporters in 1885, although most of them don't get to report on crime. They're doing exciting things like ice cream socials and weddings. Unlike many newspapers of the day, the accounts in The Champion by this reporter aren't overblown or greatly sensationalized. And I don't see a lot of politics in this or an effort to steer the narrative one way or the other, like we see even today. Plus, our intrepid reporter asks good questions and seems very nosy and gives the reader lots of good information. It's interesting to see how much more access reporters have to the details of an investigation in the old days. As our intrepid reporter... I'm going to get tired of saying that, so I'm just going to say OIR, or The Champion, reports. I was early on the scene of the murder and made a complete survey of the premises. Wouldn't you love to see a reporter try to do that nowadays? Proceeding to Miss Baldwin's apartment, I was admitted by Marshall Price. The body lay just where the murderer had left it. Listeners, maybe not exactly. The first people on the scene removed a pillow that was over her head and checked her pulse. Plus, there's a large crowd that has to be cleared from the house when the police arrived. So she may not be exactly as the murderer left her. The nightdress was buttoned closely from the 
Oh, I put a word in here from the something, um, I think from the neck to the waist, and covered the entire body except the lower extremities and the left breast. The arm lay extended to the east bed rail and the left extended down the side of the body. The pillar, pillow which the murderer had laid across the face was slightly discolored by secretions of the nostrils, and the mouth was covered with foam. At the foot, a small three-ounce bottle was found. It was empty and without a cork, and bore a poison label, which had been partly scratched. Doctors say it is probable that it was chloroform. The face which was blackened by discoloration, bore an expression of calm repose, indicating that the murderer had surprised his victim in her sleep and overcome her with the anesthetic before she could awaken. The room was turned upside down. Every drawer was out, the wardrobe and closets open, and books, papers, pocketbooks, small articles of wearing apparel scattered over the floor. Mary's engagement ring and other jewelry also appear to be missing. At any rate, no jewelry or money is found in her apartment. The last person to have been with Mary is her fiancé, Mr. Lewis. The evening before the discovery of the body, Tuesday, July 8, 1885, the couple spent the evening at the home of Mrs. E.C. Johnson, a few blocks from the Baldwin residence. After they left, they stopped at a nearby ice cream parlor. According to Lewis, Mary was supposed to spend the night with the family of Major S.R. Washer, but it was nearly 10 o'clock when they left the ice cream parlor. Mary didn't want to wake the family, so she decided to go back to her own apartment. It was not out of the ordinary for Mary to stay alone at the house when her mother was gone. According to Albert Lewis, he walked Mary home and bid her adieu at her door about 10 o'clock that night. Okay, listeners, I know we're all wondering if a chaste kiss at the door is all that happened that night. We'll never know. Later, Albert will say they spent about 20 minutes on the front porch chatting before he kissed her goodnight. Albert and the newspapers and the neighborhood, I'm sure, will never say a word to besmirch Mary's reputation. So as far as I know, that's exactly what happened. Obviously, there is no protecting of the crime scene. It's reported that hundreds of people have to be cleared out of the house. The area is roped off and a search is made of the grounds in the house. The town marshal assigns Mrs. H. V. Ferries, a close neighbor, to guard the inside of the house. Quote, it was her unpleasant duty to turn away hundreds of ladies who had known the dead girl in her lifetime and wanted to pay their respects. But she was acting under orders, and no matter how unpleasant the duty, she performed it firmly and was courteous to all. Unquote. 
It seems that Mrs. Fairies is also a very sharp lady and a very observant one who will be an important witness in this case. A coroner's jury is organized. The coroner's jury is an interesting feature of the justice system at this time in Kansas history. Nowadays, you don't hear about them like this. From what I read in this and other cases, it's more like what we think of today as a grand jury. But the coroner's jury at this time is much more proactive than I've ever heard about a grand jury being. We've talked about prosecutors in Kansas before. It's a partisan elected office called the county attorney. Atchison is the county seat of Atchison County, Kansas. In 1885, the Atchison County attorney is W.D. Gilbert. The coroner's jury operates at his direction. In this case, at least, they're working right alongside Marshall Price, who's what we would think of as the police chief for Atchison, investigating what happened to Mary, searching the house, looking at the body, collecting evidence, and talking to witnesses. Technically, the proceedings are secret, as OIR says, quote, we are not at liberty to disclose the nature of the testimony, although a good deal of it has found its way to our ears, unquote. I'll bet. So, they talk to the fiancé first, in the grand jury room, or the, I guess it's, it's really, it is a courtroom. I don't know if it's a special room for that or not, or just the regular courtroom. Um, and then to Mary's brother, William, just like what happened today. Start with the victim's inner circle and work out. Melvina is out of town at some uh, health clinic in Bloomfield, Iowa, for treatment of an unclosed infirmity. According to OIR, she is in wretched health, and it is not improbable that the news of her daughter's death will kill her. Yeah, Melvina will be in poor health for the next 30-some-odd years, she lives to be 90 years old, a much tougher woman than our reporters giving her credit for. After she gets the telegram informing her of Mary's death, she takes the train back to Atchison immediately and arrives the next day. Right away, the jury hears her testimony. Quite a lot of scientific work is done concerning the cause of death. It's quickly confirmed that the little bottle found at the scene contained chloroform and the rags were soaked in it and it's on the pillow that was covering Mary's face. The jury gets a toxicology report. There's no indication that Mary was poisoned by ingesting anything like arsenic or strychnine, some common poisons of the day. Okay, listeners, obligatory. I'm not a pathologist or a toxicologist, but I have watched 12,000 episodes of Forensic Files, and I can Google, you can die from drinking chloroform. 
and it probably wouldn't be detected. According to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, chloroform can be detected in blood, urine, and body tissues. However, these methods are not very reliable because chloroform is rapidly eliminated from the body, and the tests are not specific for chloroform. However, in our case, the much more likely scenario is not drinking chloroform. It's what we're all thinking of when we hear chloroform. It's what we've seen in the movies. A bad guy sneaks up behind the victim and puts a chloroformed rag over mouth and nose and the victim goes unconscious. It's actually not quite like that, according to what I read. For a healthy adult, it can take several minutes to go completely unconscious. There are cases where people die from this, but most likely it's from suffocation, not inhaling the chloroform. The papers have detailed accounts of the testimony of the doctors involved in Mary's autopsy and the guys who did the lab work. They never really say exactly why, but it's clear that their conclusion is that Mary died from being unconscious due to the chloroform and her death resulted from the pillow being held over her head while she was unconscious. I was looking for something about petechial hemorrhaging. If you're not familiar with that term, then you haven't watched 12,000 episodes of Forensic Files. Petechiae, P-E-T-E-C-H-I-A-E, are little red dots of blood that can be seen on skin and in the eyes. Sometimes they're seen in autopsies when there's been a strangulation or asphyxiation death. But no mention of that in this case. I Maybe it's not even a thing that they look for back in those days. However, I don't think there's any doubt they're right about the cause of death. Now, whether it's accident or murder is still a question. It's not long before the focus of the investigation becomes quite clear. When Maddie, William's wife, is questioned, one of her uncles is there. He is very upset by the tone of the questioning, and he advises William and his niece to stop talking with the investigators. Quickly, attorneys are retained for William Baldwin, the brother of the victim. Of course, just as it would today, this makes everybody even more suspicious of him than they already were. And the talk of the town has been that he's the one who did it. And just as would happen today, there is much judging of William's demeanor after his sister's death. According to OIR... Instead of engaging in the investigation himself, as it would seem natural for a brother, whose sister had been so foully murdered, he was indifferent in the matter, not even offering a paltry few hundred 
out of the many thousands he would finally gain by the death of his sister to ferret out the murderer. He seemed to be wholly lost to affection or emotion, was indifferent and stoical in giving his testimony. When there was cause for laughter in the jury room, he would join as heartily as any of them. And throughout the investigation, he exhibited an unnatural apathy that spoke much louder than the damaging evidence against him. Listeners, I don't think there's any right or wrong way to act when someone close to you is murdered. If you're too emotional, people say you're putting on an act. If you're not emotional enough, people say you didn't care about the victim. So I suppose my best unsolicited advice for people in this position is to just be yourself. Unless maybe you're the murderer. And at the very least, no matter what, don't laugh where anybody can see you. On July 19th, 1885, the jury reaches its conclusion. We, the undersigned jurors, find that Mary Baldwin came to her death by chloroform, feloniously administered by some person, between the hours of 10 o'clock p.m. July 7th and 5.30 o'clock a.m. July 8th, 1885. And we believe, according to the evidence, that person to be William Baldwin. William is arrested at his mother's home, where he and Maddie have moved in with her, at 4 a.m., and he is taken to the county jail. William is arraigned for his sister's murder in the courtroom at the Atchison County Courthouse. The prosecutor is County Attorney Gilbert, and William's defense attorney is the well-respected Bailey P. Wagner. The point of a preliminary hearing is for the prosecution to show the judge that there is enough evidence against the defendant to put in front of a jury at trial. In this case, the first thing the prosecution establishes is that Mary Baldwin was truly murdered. The defense tries to show that Mary might have been suicidal. She and Melvina write each other every day, and Mary does sound unhappy in some of the letters. Albert testifies that he and Mary hadn't set a date for the wedding yet, and admits that Mary once told him she worried they would never get married. But the idea that Mary chloroformed herself, I think anyway, is pretty crazy, and it really doesn't go anywhere. As far as motive, the prosecution does a good job of showing that William is a greedy younger brother who spends extravagantly and constantly badgers his mother for money. From financial evidence and testimony from friends and business associates, it's obvious that William doesn't handle money wisely, and he seems to be in over his head with investments he's made. Essentially, there's no money coming in except what Melvina gives him, and there's lots more money than that going out. 
To me, it sounds like mom has trouble telling him no when he asks for money. So she's put Mary in charge of her money, which naturally upsets William, who sees himself as his father's successor. Plus, he's recently gotten married and probably wants to impress his wife and her family. The defense and Melvina, who, not surprisingly, refuses to believe her only son murdered her only daughter, do what they can to mitigate that impression. But to do that, Melvina has to deny that she really meant what she herself wrote in letters to Mary and to other people. The defense also floats the idea that Mary's death was a burglary gone wrong. The chloroform was just to knock her unconscious while the thief stole things. It was an accident that Mary died. As we talked about, accidental suffocation is possible, but given the circumstances, I think, anyway, very unlikely. The main point against this being that nobody seriously believes this is a burglary. Nothing of value is missing. The few valuables that seem to be missing at first, Mary's engagement ring and watch, are found in the toe of her shoe. The estimable Mrs. Fairies, who's on the scene shortly after Mary's body is found, the lady guarding the scene from ladies wanting to pay their respects, provides more details about the scene. When she gets there, the key to the door to Mary's room is in the lock on the inside. Both windows, one on the north and one on the east side of the house, are open. Quote, Mary's hair had evidently been arranged for the night, but it was down and matted in the back part of the neck, as though her head had been held by somebody while she shook it in her efforts to release herself. The foot of the bed was pushed out from the wall. The white bedspread and sheet seemed to have been grabbed up and thrown to one side. One pillow was on the floor. A pillow was over her face. Her gown was drawn down smoothly over her extremities. Some of the dressing case drawers were closed, others open, some were ransacked. The disturbances in the room looked to me as if they had been done for effect, to impress anybody that the visitor had been through the thing." Unquote. An interesting impression that she mentions is that the dresses hanging in Mary's wardrobe looked like they were pushed over to one side, as if someone might have been hiding in there. That will turn out to be part of the prosecution's theory of the crime. One of Mary's friends, Mrs. Florence Ferries, assume, uh, presumably Mrs. Ferry's daughter, even testifies about Willie's odd behavior. Listeners, what she says is very strange. It's possible Florence is embellishing, but I tend to believe her. Willie does come across as kind of an odd duck. Here's what she says. I had a conversation with her, with Mary, about Willie having frequently concealed himself in that room. He used to do it to torment her. He was in the habit of slipping in, oftentimes, after she had retired. She would not know how he got in, but he would get in and suddenly spring at her." Unquote. 
Weird, huh? At any rate, to no one's surprise, 22-year-old William J. Baldwin is charged with the murder of his sister, and trial is set to begin on November 11, 1885, in Atchison, Kansas. The courtroom is packed, of course. The judge gallantly makes all the men spectators give up their seats to the many ladies in attendance. OIR remarks that if more ladies show up, quote, the men will have to take the window sills, unquote. The first witnesses are Michael J. Fitzgerald and Charles Spaulding, the young men who found the body. Michael relates that he usually eats supper with Mrs. Barrow, the plant lady, and her husband, but since they're out of town, he's been going to supper at a nearby restaurant, usually with Charles. Then he typically stays downtown until it starts to get dark. He's normally in bed by about 10 o'clock, but there was a moon on the night of the murder, so he was out a little later than usual. He did see Mary on the porch about 7 o'clock as he was leaving. She was waiting for her fiancé. He met Albert on the way to the house as he headed downtown. He adds, I had a sort of feeling on the night of the 7th, turned over in bed, seemed to be not long after I had gone to bed. Don't know what disturbed me. I don't know, listeners, maybe... Maybe he heard that, and maybe he's just looking back, imagining he heard something. Um, And there certainly was someone else in the house that night who murdered Mary. Several other witnesses support Michael and Spaulding's story and testify about the murder scene. There is a lot of testimony about the panel cut out of the door. The prosecution contends that the murderer cut the panel out after the murder to support the idea of a burglary. The defense, of course, says it was a burglar and he cut it out so he could get into the house. To convince anyone that they need to show it was cut from the outside. So that's what the prosecution tries to do. They call some carpenters to testify that, yes, it looks to them like it's definitely cut from the outside. But, let's see, no, the defense wants it cut from the outside. So they have their experts, so battle of the experts. But The preponderance of witnesses really seem to think it's clearly cut mostly from the inside and maybe partly from the outside. Everybody seems to think it the only way it's really possible to do that is to be holding it on both sides. Um, let's see. Nowadays, the scene of the crime people would take pictures and analyze the sawing and the cutting, and we know, but, um, I kind of think, I think William sat there and cut it, kind of maybe holding it between his knees to give him some more leverage on it. Um, I think the prosecution does a very good job making their case that this isn't a burglary. It's a murder of Mary Baldwin in particular, not just whoever might be in the house. The coroner, Dr. W. W. Campbell, testifies that death was caused by suffocation. There's never any mention 
in the paper of possible sexual assault. I don't find it surprising that a newspaper in 1885 would treat that subject very delicately. The most they ever say is that the body was not interfered with. The coroner makes uh, a point that he sees no marks of violence on the body. The most damaging testimony is given by a druggist's assistant who works at a drugstore in St. Joseph, Missouri. This man swears that the bottle of chloroform was bought at the store where he works before the murder by none other than William J. Baldwin. He positively identifies him. Now, I'm always skeptical of eyewitness accounts, and it sounds like even the newspapers might be a little skeptical. There's a lot of effort made to connect William to this bottle of chloroform. And it's certainly possible a lot of pressure was brought on this young man to, you know, be a hero and help us put this murderer away. Although I I'm always also a little skeptical that people will risk perjury charges, but it does happen. We all we all know it does. So it's possible his identification may not be quite as positive as it sounds like. In my opinion, um, William got the chloroform on one of the trips that he made. He just recently made a trip for, oh, three weeks or a month out to California and Colorado. So my guess would be that's where he bought the chloroform. Anyway, Albert testifies about how pleasant his relationship with Mary and her mother was. He says he was at their house every day for the better part of a year, often giving them advice on financial matters. He admits to loaning money to William and to Mrs. Baldwin on occasion. About the night of the murder, he says, quote, She was in good spirits, bade me good night, and kissed me good night. She was not unhappy and seemed to be feeling in the best of spirits. She had spoken to me about our marriage. She thought we ought to marry at once, said she had special reasons for such a desire. She promised to tell me several times, but never did so. We were to have been married in September. Listeners, I think what the prosecutor is getting at with this testimony is that if Mary and Albert get married, William will not get her share of the estate. Albert will. Albert is likely to take over as the man of the family. Albert's a 40-year-old man with a very respectable business record. Now, the defense tries to spin this urgency to get married into a cause for Mary to be suicidal. Albert bristles at this, and he and the defense attorney, Mr. Wagner, argue back and forth quite a bit. It's clear from reading the account of the trial that Wagner is not pulling any punches in his defense of his client. Unfortunately for him, the facts of the case make it hard to defend William. The suicide angle really doesn't get much traction, no matter how hard he tries. 
Wagner decides not to call Melvina or Maddie or his client to testify. All the legal experts of the day agree that this was the only wild decision. Allowing the prosecution to cross-examine any of these witnesses would only have hurt the defense. And I, I tend to agree. From what I read, the these witnesses, when they were testifying before the coroner's jury and at the preliminary hearing, were not very good witnesses for the defense. They got angry and they changed their mind about things and just didn't make a very good impression that they were trying to do anything but lie for William. The trial wraps up in less than two weeks and goes to the jury on November 19, 1885. The first vote is 11 to 1 for conviction. The lone holdout, a Mr. Burns, wants to read over some of the trial information before he decides for sure. It's very late, so the rest of the jury goes to sleep right there in the jury room. Early the next morning, the jury announces they have reached a verdict. The small bit of paper upon which was written the fate of the defendant was handed to the clerk, and it was observed that while all others were nervous and almost breathless, Baldwin sat alone, composed and apparently unconcerned. As the clerk opened the verdict, his hands and voice trembled as he commanded the defendant to stand up and receive the verdict of the jury, which read as follows. The State of Kansas, Plaintiff versus William Baldwin, Defendant, Verdict, We the Jury, Duly Impaneled, Charged and Sworn in the Above Entitled Action, Do Upon Our Oaths, Find the Defendant, William Baldwin, Guilty of murder in the first degree, as charged in the first count of the information, John Ernst Foreman. Melvina and Maddie are overcome by grief. Maddie sobs uncontrollably. Melvina moans, they have killed my girl, and now they want to kill my boy. William tries to comfort them as he is led away to jail to await sentencing. Wagner files the obligatory appeals. The motion for a new trial is argued a couple of weeks later. As usual, there are all sorts of reasons given for the appeal. To me, it always seems like defense attorneys throw everything they can against the wall to see if anything will stick. And, of course, that's their job. The main points are that there was not enough evidence to convict William and that strong public opinion unduly influenced the jury's decision. Ironically, the defense attorney making the final appeal is Mr. Charles Cochran. Our intrepid reporter takes umbrage at what Cochran says in his argument. Mr. Cochran went out of his way in his speech to abuse the newspapers of the city, characterizing their report of the case, a gross misstatement of fact, and alleging that they had molded the hostile public sentiment against Baldwin. It was Mr. Cochran who assisted this reporter in his investigations on the night of the discovery of Mary Baldwin's dead body, and the same Mr. Cochran 
was among the first to raise the cry against the young man whose innocence he now so loudly proclaims. Assertions of Baldwin's innocence and denunciations of newspapers that don't believe in it would come with much better grace from somebody who has not a hundred times in the last four months publicly proclaimed his belief in Mr. Baldwin's guilt. Ah, lawyers and journalists, how dull our lives would be without them. The judge renders his decision the following week. Quote, the court is not convinced, and therefore the motion for a new trial will be overruled, unquote. Baldwin is sentenced to hang. Now all is not yet lost. A last-ditch appeal is filed with the Kansas Supreme Court. This at least delays the execution until the court issues a decision on a new trial. On January 13, 1886, William J. Baldwin becomes inmate number 1523 at the Kansas State Penitentiary in Lansing, Kansas. As we've talked about before, the Leavenworth, Kansas area where this podcast originates is the location of several prisons. Lansing, Kansas borders Leavenworth on the south, and that's where what's known as Lansing Correctional Facility is today. In the past, it was the Kansas State Prison and the Kansas State Penitentiary. If you've seen the movie In Cold Blood, it's that really grim-looking prison. In 1885, it's certainly a desolate place to be sent, especially to wait for your own hanging or to live out your life in that place. That spring, there is some good news for the Baldwins. The Kansas State Legislature passes a statute that requires the governor to approve death sentences, not just a judge can issue them. Since the governor is an anti-death penalty supporter, Baldwin's death sentence is effectively nullified. We've talked about the weird history of the death penalty in Kansas. The general impression, at least I think, is that Kansas is a hardcore law and order conservative kind of state. In reality, relatively few executions take place in Kansas. In the entire history of Kansas, there have only been 76 executions carried out by the state. So only about one every couple of years on average. I should qualify that and say legal executions. The other side of the coin is that Kansas also has a reputation as a lynching state in the past. But on the whole, the state's history shows a great reluctance to legally, at least, execute people. The last execution was in 1965. It wasn't uh, Hickok and Smith. 
the Clutter family murders, murderers made famous by Truman Capote in his classic true crime book in Cold Blood, but they were almost the last guys to hang. For a long time, there was no death penalty at all in Kansas. Even after it was restored, governors have seldom let executions go through. Late the next year, the Kansas Supreme Court refuses to grant a new trial for Baldwin. Melvina still believes in her son. She's able to visit him often and with his wife. This is from a newspaper in 1890. Mrs. Baldwin returned yesterday from a visit to her son in the penitentiary and reports that he has been very sick and is dying. Um, he's not. She thinks of nothing else and talks of nothing else but that his conviction was wrong. She is devoting her life to him and believes the time will come when those who accused him of killing her daughter will think as she does about it, that he is innocent. Mrs. Baldwin's life for some years past has been a sad one. About five years ago, her husband died. A few months later, her only daughter was murdered. And a few months later, her only son was convicted of the murder and sentenced to death. And she is left alone in the world in her old age. Well, William isn't dying, and he won't die for 50 more years. And Melvina's not alone. Sometime in all of this, Maddie has given birth to a son, Milton. And she lives with Melvina and helps take care of her. But yeah, this is all very tough for the Baldwins, and it will get worse. In November 1890, little Milton dies. Then on the very day of his son's funeral, there's some good news for William and his family. The bittersweet news is that the governor of Kansas has pardoned William Baldwin. William's defense attorney, Bailey P. Wagner, never gave up. I think if it had been necessary, he would have gone to the U.S. Supreme Court, but he finally got a hearing from the Kansas Board of Pardons, and they didn't just recommend mercy for William. They issue a pretty scathing report saying that the trial wasn't fair, the judge didn't follow correct procedures, and so on and so on. They literally declare that William should have been found innocent. On November 7th, 1890, William walks out of the Kansas State Penitentiary a free man. Sadly, the first place he goes as a free man is to his son's funeral. Okay, listeners, that is the story of the sad end to the life of Mary Baldwin. William and Maddie and Melvina stay in Atchison, living in the house where Mary died. Eventually, most people reconcile themselves to the idea that William may be innocent. It's over 130 years now, so all we can really do is come up with opinions. So let's do that. Yes, it's wild speculation time. I think there are a couple of other possibilities besides murder by William. Suicide was the defense's theory. I've said that was really crazy, but 
it is possible. Chloroform was commonly used as an anesthetic by dentists and doctors, and it could be bought at any pharmacy. I didn't find any cases of people using it to get high, but whatever the drug is, there's always somebody stupid enough to try it. In the 1800s, there are reported cases of people killing themselves, both by inhaling it and by drinking it. And there are accidental deaths reported by dentists and doctors. People in their offices they're giving the anesthetic to sometimes have a bad reaction to it. So yes, it is possible this was suicide or an accident. But looking at the circumstances, I really don't think so in this case. I know people do commit suicide unexpectedly, and they don't always leave a note. But I don't think suicide by chloroform is what we have here. What about a burglary gone wrong? A woman does pop up later claiming that her husband did the murder in the course of a burglary. He didn't mean to kill Mary, and he panicked. That's why nothing was taken. Now, this story was completely discredited, but it did raise a reasonable possibility. Of course, it means the burglar is carrying chloroform around to just in case, in case he has to knock out a victim. That doesn't seem likely to me. It seems more like um, maybe kidnapping Mary was the plan, but she accidentally suffocated and died. That's possible. I don't think it's very likely, but it's something to consider. Is there a serial killer in Atchison? My grandson's first thought when I said chloroform was H.H. H. Holmes, the famous serial killer who built the so-called murder castle in Chicago. He killed victims with chloroform. And listeners, the timing is right. And the place, Chicago, that's just a train ride away from Atchison. How's that for wild speculation? Here's some more. Suppose sexual assault is the motive, but the rapist only means to knock Mary out, not kill her. He, I guess, panics and can't complete his purpose when she dies unexpectedly. Um, yeah, we can speculate, but I've got to say this is pretty far out. But what about more reasonable speculation? What about suspects close to the victim besides William? My first thought was Michael J. Fitzgerald, the boarder. He's the one who found the body, often a likely suspect. Of everybody, he has the most opportunity. He's in the house all night, every night, alone with Mary. Does he have some obsession with her? Has she spurned his advances and made him want to murder her? That's possible, sure. But I think think I'm going to discount this theory too. Melvina and Albert 
And all Mary's girlfriends say that one of the reasons Mary didn't mind staying at the house alone while her mother and the Barrows couple were gone is that Michael was there to protect her. Still, I'll say it again, of all the people, he's got the most time and opportunity. Say he kills Mary the night before, he's got all day long to stage the scene and then come back with a friend to innocently find the body. That could have happened. In my heart of hearts, though, I just don't see it. The next prime suspect would be Mary's fiancé. People want to present the best face possible to their friends and family about their relationships. We often say you never know what really goes on behind closed doors in a marriage. We can say the same thing about an engagement. By all accounts, Albert and Mary are a pleasant, contented, happily engaged couple. But even by Albert's account... Mary is pushing him to get married as soon as possible. What if he's having second thoughts and trying to figure out how to break things off respectably? Breaking an engagement was a lot messier in those days. There was a legal thing called breach of promise. Actually, there still is. Albert could get sued. And what if Mary's pregnant? There's absolutely no indication of this. I think doctors would have discovered a pregnancy when they did the autopsy, but in those days, they probably wouldn't make that public. It's entirely possible Albert is lying about their relationship. Or what if Mary's having an affair and he's jealous, or he's having an affair, say with a married woman? or another man, perhaps. If Mary threatened to expose that, ooh, we can let our imaginations run wild. He could also easily be lying about the night of the murder. Perhaps he didn't chastely kiss Mary goodnight and leave. He went into the house and ended up murdering her. That could have happened, but I just don't think so. If there's some scandal brewing with this couple, I think there would be gossip about it, especially after the murder. And there never is anything like that about Mary and Albert. By all indications, they are two stable, mature adults who are planning to get married soon, and they both care a great deal about their respectability. Plus, if Albert murdered Mary that night, he doesn't have much time to do it. The couple is seen walking home after they get ice cream very close to 10 o'clock. Michael Fitzgerald gets home about 11, so Albert has only about an hour to kill Mary, mess up the house, cut the back panel out of the kitchen door, and escape. That's not an unreasonable theory, but in my opinion, that's not what happened either. William did it is by far the most likely explanation. This is a letter from Mary to Melvina right before the murder. Willie came in for five minutes Saturday to get money. Has not been here since. 
I presume you have a letter from him now. I'm sorry I told him where you were. I am told that our citizens generally are criticizing his course quite severely. He seems to have given the impression, by either word or deed, that he does not intend to stop until by strategy or other means he has gotten all your money and as much of mine as he can. Yeah, very ominous. William has been spending very extravagantly ever since his marriage. Everyone is aware of that. On top of that, he's gone into a lot of debt, buying properties to build houses on, and the construction is not going well. He's not a good planner or manager, and he's desperate for money. Melvina can't handle his demands for money, so she's gone off to a health spa and said not to tell William where she is. I think that's very telling. Mary's clearly afraid of him. She's pressuring Albert to get married for a couple of reasons. For one thing, Albert would inherit her share of the estate, so William wouldn't have a motive to kill her. Plus, if she's married, she has a husband to protect her. So for me, this strong motive to murder Mary that only William has is the clincher. Obligatory, not an expert in psychology, but I think William is another nothing-matters-but-what-I-want type murderer. A narcissist or sociopath, psychopath, whatever you want to call it. Remember, he's the youngest of five children, three of whom died young. He's seven years younger than Mary, so I would call him the stereotypical spoiled baby of the family. He wants to be rich and successful, but he wants it right now, and he doesn't have the capability to do that. He's messed up his finances so badly that if he doesn't get lots of money fast, he'll go bankrupt, and everybody, including his new wife, will know what a screw-up he is. He knows he can get around his mother, so the only person standing in his way is his sister Mary, who is about to get married and snatch her share of the money away forever. To somebody like this, removing the obstacle is the only thing he can do. Whatever makes him happy is what he has to do. So now is the perfect time with Malvina and the Barrows both out of town. He has keys to the house, so getting in is no problem. If he makes it seem like a burglary, suspicion will be directed away from him. I'm sure one worry was Fitzgerald might hear something. That's when I think he comes up with the idea to use chloroform and quietly smother Mary. It's possible that Fitzgerald might not come home until afterwards. Cutting the door panel and staging the burglary would be noisy, so my guess is that he does that the next day while William's at work. Sorry, not William, while uh, Michael, Michael Fitzgerald's at work. The prosecution theory is that William let himself into the house after 
Fitzgerald and Mary left the house for the evening. Then he hid in Mary's wardrobe in her room until she went to sleep, waiting to kill her. After the murder, he stages the burglary and sneaks back home, pretending he's been in bed all night. Um, I don't think so. Not exactly, at least. It's hard to say without a better idea of the layout of Mary's room and the size of the wardrobe. But if my plan is to hide in the wardrobe, I would worry that Mary might open the door to hang something up and see me. So maybe William's backup plan is to jump on her if that happens. Everyone on the scene seems to think Mary was definitely asleep when she was attacked. And there aren't any marks on the body like she put up much of a fight, just the sheets and coverlet knocked to one side. If I have to guess, I think he came in through one of the open windows in the bedroom. If you're in the house already, it would be easy and quiet to open a window upstairs and creep around to one of Mary's bedroom windows. There's a porch roof there. And we know the windows are open when the body's found. It's even possible Mary didn't lock her bedroom door that night or that William had a key to her room. Maybe even just lean a ladder up. The yard is a very large one with lots of trees and bushes. It's unlikely anyone would see you. From the testimony of his landlord and Maddie, William is home in bed when Mary and Albert get home. So I don't think he sneaks out until after midnight sometime. It's only a couple of blocks from where Maddie and William live to Mary's house. There are witnesses who say that Maddie told them she woke up in the middle of the night on the night of the murder and William wasn't there. He claimed that he had diarrhea and was in the outhouse. And Mary's told some of her friends that he often, during the past few months, has been getting up at night and going for walks and not returning until early in the morning. There are plenty of plausible scenarios for what William did leading up to the murder. There's some risk of being seen, but it's the middle of the night in a residential area where you'd expect everybody to be home asleep. And it's very dark, no street lights. So however he got to the house and into Mary's room, he crept up in the dark to her bed, put the chloroform-soaked rag and pillow over her face, and smothered her. I don't think she went unconscious immediately, which may have surprised him. That's why the bed is disturbed. But he has the advantage. All he has to do is sit on her chest and hold the pillow down until she stops breathing. Then he leaves and sneaks back home. He has all day the next day to stage the burglary. So yes, listeners, <coughs> excuse me, I think William James Baldwin is guilty of sororicide. I looked up what it's called, the killing of one's sister. 
in order to gain her inheritance, one of the oldest motives for murder, greed. That was his motive. I think the jury and public opinion got it right this time. However, in this case, I can't completely rule out other possibilities. It's possible someone else besides William Baldwin got away with the murder of Mary Baldwin. After his release from the state prison, William and Maddie lived with Malvina in the house on Commercial Street where Mary was murdered. They have two more children, Raymond and Ruth. In 1902, a brief notice appears in the paper. Mrs. William Baldwin committed suicide yesterday by taking morphine. She left a letter saying she was tired of life. Sixteen years ago, Miss Mary Baldwin, sister of William Baldwin, was found dead in the same room in which Mrs. Baldwin died today. Listeners, anybody else wondering if there was a large insurance policy on poor Maddie? Within a few years, William remarries a much younger woman, Frankie Marion. It's, it's not right after the death of his wife. He waits a respectable period of time, but she's barely in her 20s when they get married. She moves into the house on commercial with her mother. They help take care of Melvina. William and Frankie have one child, a daughter, Elizabeth. Then Frankie dies in 1910. Hmm, another wife dead doesn't, doesn't really say anywhere what her cause of death was. Um, sorry, I lost my place. Okay, then, in September 12th, 1921, William Baldwin is in the headlines one last time. Despondent, in ill health. Miss Ruth Baldwin, that would be his and Maddie's little daughter, born after he gets out of prison, 26 years old, 1101 Commercial Street, is missing. In three letters, she stated she had fully determined to end her life. She animated the Missouri River would provide a watery grave for her. Spoiler alert, it does provide a watery grave for her. Quote, I'm sure my daughter perished in the Missouri River, sobbed William J. Baldwin this afternoon while being interviewed. For three years, Ruth has been in wretched health. Nobody is in good health in this family. Several times she intimated that life had only gloomy prospects for her. Now that she is missing, we recall that several of her remarks might be construed as threats to take her own life. I have offered a reward for her remains. Unquote. Anybody think 
offering a reward for remains and not her return safe and sound when you don't even know if she's dead yet is a little suspicious. Anyway, Melvina Baldwin dies a few days later at the age of 90. Two days after that, Rue's body is found two miles south of Atchison, floating near the mouth of Whiskey Creek on the Kansas side of the Missouri River. William dies in Atchison over 20 years later, in 1943, almost 80 years old at the time of his death. Listeners, all I can say is that even for those days, William has a lot of women close to him dying young. A very unfortunate man. Or is it something else? Okay, listeners, that's it for tonight's episode of Prison City Murders. I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and tell your friends about the podcast. If you would leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts, that would be awesome. I know I keep begging for these, but I really enjoy them. I, I got another one. I was really excited. Thank you, Amy. You can comment on the cases on the podcast website, prisoncitymurders.blubrry.net. If you hate putting your thoughts out there on the internet, I get that. You can also email me privately at prisoncitymurders at gmail.com. After the door slams, I'll replay the message from my friend Rick Burns about the Karata Project International. It's a wonderful charitable project that you can use for your help. It's the one I told you about last week. The website is www.k sorry k a r a d a h project dot com if you'd like to know more. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars. Hi, my name is Rick Burns. After multiple army deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, I founded Karata Project to continue supporting peace, stability, and humanitarian efforts in those countries. In Afghanistan, there are over 2.5 million internally displaced persons. There are over 1.9 million Iraqis internally displaced. You won't hear much about these people. They live in the shadows, far away from the media attention of those crossing borders as refugees but they are in equally devastating circumstances. Forced to flee violence, war, natural disasters, poverty, and other devastating crises, innocent people, mostly women and children, are forced to live in austere camps on the edges of society where language, cultural differences, competition for jobs, and prejudice cause them to be discriminated against and ostracized.
Economic opportunities are limited, and education for their children is delayed or may even be halted forever. Through our local partners, we are giving displaced women marketable skills, literacy instruction, business mentoring, and earn-as-you-learn opportunities through negotiated contracts. We partner with the UN World Food Program to provide the women with food rations for their families during the six-month program. These women are pulling themselves out of poverty and improving the lives of their families. We're not stopping there. We created a kindergarten to give their children a start to their education and provide a conduit into the public pri primary schools. In rural areas, we're building bathrooms in girls' schools where none exist. Imagine teenage girls with no bathroom facility. We're also giving poor women self-sustaining hens and goats. These are just a few of the ways we're making the world a better place. If you want to change the world, join us.